So today, we are going to be talking about the analogy that was used most often by the Master himself and his apostles to picture us as a community of dis disciples. I guess the Greek word for that would be the ecclesia. And if you're joining us online and you didn't catch this earlier, there's a reason I'm dressed in my, my plaid pajamas today. Uh, actually, there are a couple of reasons. Uh, for one thing, we just like to have a pajama Shabbat every now and then to remind us that Shabbat is a day for R&R. &R. And, uh, and um, also because it's going to be a picture of what we're going to talk about today. So I'm actually going to be basing this talk and the talks I'm going to be giving for the next two Shabbats on a verse from last week's reading from something that Yeshua said in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we are going to be looking at how we as a community of disciples are a family. And what that could or should work out like on a practical level, uh, there are issues that come up in families that are very similar to issues that come up in communities like ours. And uh, we're also going to talk about gangs and gangsters and how gangs are, for many people, a substitute for family. We're going to look at some statistics and ask, why is that? I think that'll be a really relevant topic of discussion, actually, for us here in Prince Albert, because there are gangs in the city, and they have appeal. So we're not going to hit all of that today. I'm going to break it up into a couple weeks. So if you want to look with me at Mark chapter 10, verses 28 to 30, that is where we will begin. Mark 10, 28 to 30. You know the story about the young man who was quite affluent. He was a, he was a property owner and his, his holdings were, were sizable. And he came to the master and said, so what do I have to do to get eternal life? To really live the good life, maybe you could say. And uh, Yeshua said, well, w what are the commandments? And he, he listed most of the commandments that apply to our social interactions with the exclusion of the one about coveting, notably. And uh, Yeshua said, you're, you're, you're missing one thing. You need to go home and just liquidate your assets, sell everything that you have, basically, and then come and follow me. Become my full-time disciple. Hit the road with me, was the idea. And uh, he had a really hard time with that. And uh, he walked off pretty perplexed. And it's really touching. There's actually this personal glimpse where it says that Yeshua looked at him and loved him. It's kind of neat. It wasn't like Yeshua was this hardliner, legalistic, religious dude who just wanted to make rules that were almost impossible for people to keep. He really loved this young man. And he wanted this young man to be part of his entourage. He wanted this young man to follow him and become like a real disciple and share life with him. And then eventually this young man could go on to represent Yeshua in his community. So it's kind of neat that he, he did give some hardliner expectations, but they came from such a heart of love. Anyway, so this guy walks off and uh, Yeshua says, you know, it's, it's really tough for uh, materially wealthy people or property owners to get into the kingdom. And that was a shocker for his disciples. And they said, well, who, who could be saved then? And you know the story. Yeshua says, the things that are humanly impossible are very possible with God. That's encouraging. It goes on to say in verse 28, uh, Kepha, or Peter, began to say to him, look, we've left everything and followed you. Yeshua said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions 
and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. I have to check something here. We're good. That's the challenge of like being the techie guy and the preacher. It's kind of like I have to be two people. It's, I'm, it's, it's hard enough just being one person, quite frankly. So it's, it's a real challenge for me to be two people. Anyway, did you notice there that Yeshua said, for those of us who have made sacrifices to follow him, to live for the cause of his gospel, for those of us who have left things as it were, whatever that looks like. And then he lists some things like houses or farms, brothers or sisters, your parents, children. He says, you will receive a hundred times as much in heaven, in the world to come. No, that's not what he says. He says, you will receive a hundred times as much now, in, the, in the, this world. In Hebrew we say the, the olam hazeh, this world. And then he lists them all with the exclusion of one. He, he doesn't list fathers, which is interesting. He lists houses, brothers and sisters, and mothers, and there's no fathers mentioned, which is interesting, and children and farms, along with persecutions. So uh, he, he throws in persecutions into the deal. And then in the, world, the Ulam Abba, the world to come, eternal life. So just uh, hold, that, hold that concept in mind, and we'll look at one more passage uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, verses 46 to 50. Uh, th this is a classic one. Um, Yeshua had a good Jewish family. Um, they, they thought that he lost his mind. They thought he went crazy. And so they actually made the hike from, uh, from Nazareth, where he grew up, to Kafarnahum on the shores of the Sea of Galilee to come and get him and bring him back home. And uh, this is what it says, Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 to 50. While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. Why were they standing outside? Because the house was packed. This house was packed to the hilt with people. So they were standing outside. They couldn't even get in. Yeshua answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Look, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he's my brother and sister and mother. Wow. So did you notice in both of these, in both of these stories... Yeshua made reference to the community of disciples that was forming around him. The Greek word for that would be the ecclesia. It's usually translated in English as the church. And he's saying that one of the best ways to picture the relationship that I have with my Talmudim, my disciples, and the best way to picture the relationship that they have with each other is that of a familial relationship, like family. So that's, that's what we're going to look at here. Um, if I were to ask you, what are some of the pictures that Yeshua and later the apostles used to say, this is what the ecclesia, this is what the church or the, the messianic community is like. What are some of the analogies they use? Just shout them out to me. Body. A body, yes. The physical body is a primary one. Marriage, Marriage right. Temple. The temple. When he said, you, we are living stones in the spiritual temple, yeah. Yeah, and a family. That's right. And there are others. Um, Paul talked about the Corinthian community being like God's field, 
which is a farmer term, God's building, which is a construction worker or, uh, or architectural term. So you can hear that they use many different analogies to say, we as a community, this is what we're like. These are pictures in the natural world of what we are as a spiritual group. And uh, interestingly enough, if you look at all of these analogies, do you know which one is most often used to describe us as a community of disciples? It's the family. There are other ones that are used, but it's the family that is used most often. And I could just go brrr, and I could give you all of the references right now, but instead, as we, as we, as we have these talks, I'm just going to weave those scriptures in throughout them so that they make sense in context of certain themes that we're going to talk about. So, and you can totally see that right here in these two um, passages from the red letters. Yeshua says, you know what? Some of you are going to lose key relationships with family members that you love, but as you come into my kingdom, you are, going to, you are going to have so many more family members. So let's say your mom cuts ties with you because you have become a Jesus freak. You're going to have, he's going to give you many more spiritual moms in his family. Let's say that you lose touch with a, uh, a sister or a brother because they are um, engaged in gross sin and you just can't spend too much quality time with them because they, they try and suck you back into that or because you can't participate in that sin and that's where they want to spend quality time with you. You're losing to a degree a brother or sister, but you're going to gain many more brothers and sisters in the family that is in his kingdom. That's kind of a, the idea there. It's kind of interesting too, I, I mentioned this, but he doesn't say fathers because what did he say in Matthew? Don't be called father because you have one father. He was in heaven. Uh, th th these are really important talks, not just for us as a community, but for as we think about our city and, and the areas that we're from and how to reach our cities and the areas we're from with the message of Yeshua. Uh, because there's a real need in our culture for family relationships. Uh, we, we live in an era where um, the world is becoming increasingly urbanized. Uh, only one or two hundred years ago, almost everyone lived in the country. In, um, in the area where their families often live for centuries, hundreds of years. They could say, yeah, my grandpa lived here, my great-grandpa, my great-great-grandpa. I mean, I, I'm from, you know, the Blaine Lake area here in Saskatchewan. On my mom's side, my dad's side is from North Battleford. On my mom's side, our, fa our farm was farmed by my great-grandparents. So it has been in the family and farmed by someone in the family for over 100 years. If you can imagine that to the nth degree in other areas of the world, that's what you're thinking about. But we live in an age of urbanization where many people are leaving where they came from and moving to the city. Um, in, 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 in North America, you also have an increasing number of people who move every five or ten years, um, often, for, uh, often for career reasons. Maybe they, are, maybe they work for a company and uh, they have some new job opportunity or whatever, they're given a promotion and they have to move to a new city. And in the process, their family is left behind somewhere. And maybe they see them once or twice a year for Thanksgiving or Easter or Christmas or something like that, whatever holidays people do. That's, um, that's often how things are. So we live in a world where people are increasingly out of touch with their families where they have little family quite often. We also live in, an, in a time when there is an increasing number of people who grow up without dads. Uh, single moms are epidemic in our culture. Um, often, you know, these, these people grow up without that kind of healthy family unit also. Um, how many of you know what the, uh, the Cranked Academy was? It was here in Prince Albert. They shut down not too long ago. The Crank Academy was the, the MMA Academy, the Mixed Martial Arts Academy here in Prince Albert. They had a place, um, they had a place over uh, just south of Boston Pizza on, um, I guess that would be on, is that on 2nd? Yeah. yeah, on 2nd. 
uh, yeah, and um, in, in that mall there. And uh, this, th- this was like an academy where, where guys, especially young guys, would come like five or six evenings a week for three hours and they would train in mixed martial arts. So they'd train in, like, in, in, in punching and kicking and different methods of, of wrestling and submissions and this kind of thing. And uh, I got on their Facebook page uh, last year when they, were still, when they were still operative and this is what their theme was. Their theme was, this is my family. This is our family, right? And uh, the kind of guys that Cranked was reaching were guys who wanted what? A family. They had brothers. They had like older brothers that were teaching them. They had something that they were doing together. It was very, and you know what? It had a lot of appeal for a lot of young guys. Now, do you know who the least likely kind of person in our culture is to go to church? The least likely to go to church are single males between the ages of 18 and 34. I, I fit into that category except that I'm not single. But that's kind of, that's kind of the, the, the category that I belong to. And, you know, I, I, I love the body of Christ. I, I, I visit different churches regularly. And quite frankly, I understand why young males between the ages of 13 and 24 don't like going to church. I, often I don't blame them, quite frankly. But these are the guys that I am most passionate about. These are the guys that, well, these are, these are my peers, you know. But these are the guys that I really want to see come to know Yeshua as a, as a person, as a spiritual master, as a great hero and leader. And I want to see them come to follow him. And maybe not in the traditional religious context that many of them have been to or seen and been burned by or turned off by. So anyway, I just think it's interesting that Cranked MMA, that was their slogan. This is our family. Um... Same thing with gangs. We'll talk about this more uh, a couple of Shabbats from now, but one of the main appeals of gangs is it's a family. It's like the family replacement for a lot of people. So it's something that's very relevant here. Um, do you know how many times we as believers are called brothers or brothers and sisters in the writings of Yeshua's apostles? I'll write it down for you because this is amazing. Like very often today, people, their primary frame of reference or their core identity as a follower of Yeshua as, as a Christian, right? It's interesting that we're only called Christians like three times in the whole New Testament. But guess how many times we're called brothers or brothers and, sixters, brothers and sisters? 160 times. Do you know how many times we are called that in Paul's epistles? 130 times. Can you hear that? Like in the first century, in the early Yeshua movement, people looked at each other primarily as brothers and sisters. That's what they called each other. And that was actually quite, that was pretty cutting edge. That was, ra- that was pretty radical, especially in the Roman world from what I've heard. Because a family was also a legal unit. And you don't just go around calling other people outside of your legal family unit brother and sister. That could actually border on the illegal from what I've read about the, the Roman world. But that's what they called each other. That's very radical, very countercultural for their time. So you'd think that if we're called brothers and sisters, this family term that many times, it must be something pretty, uh, pretty key to who we are. I, um, I'm going to read to you a page or two from an author named Frank Viola from a book of his called Reimagining Church. Uh, I don't agree with everything any author writes, so just because I read you a page or two from Viola doesn't mean I agree with everything that he writes. Uh, I met him in person at a house church community in Jacksonville about uh, 
10 years ago, I guess. It was a while ago. But anyway, he, he's an author that really um, promotes like house church, uh, keeping things really simple, kind of the orga- organic church um, way of doing community. And uh, he, one of the things Viola says that I'm going to read to you here is that if we don't understand how we are like a family, and if we don't function like a family, then we're ultimately either going to go the route of functioning more like a corporation, or we are just going to function like a dysfunctional family. Those are his two things. So I'll read to you a a page from Reimagining Church by Frank Viola. Page uh, 99. If you can all turn to page 99. This is what he says. um, In all of Paul's letters to the churches, he speaks to the brethren, a term that includes both brothers and sisters in Christ, Paul uses this familiar term more than 130 times in his epistles. So without question, the New Testament is filled with the language and imagery of family. In stark contrast, the dominating metaphor that's typically constructed for the church today is the business corporation. The pastor is the CEO, the clergy and or staff is upper management, evangelism is sales and marketing, the congregation is the clientele, and there's competition with other corporations or churches in the same town. But the corporation metaphor has a major problem. Not only is it glaringly absent from the New Testament, it does violence to the spirit of Christianity. Because from God's standpoint, the church is primarily a family. His family, in fact. Regrettably, present-day society is plagued by what sociologists call the dysfunctional family. This is a family that has been profoundly broken in some way. It may be intact outwardly, but it's damaged inwardly. If the truth be told, many of our modern churches are in every sense of the word dysfunctional families. Most churches have no trouble giving glib assent to the idea that the church is a family. Yet giving mental assent to the family nature of the church is vastly different from fleshing out its sober implications. It would do us well to look closely at the family metaphor and discuss the practical implications that are connected with it. Ask yourself this question. Is my church living in the reality of being the family of God? I am. That's very cool. Yeah, oh, definitely. A lot of, uh, many, many Christian communities are in touch with that. Well, I, I, think we ha- I think there are areas where we can we, we can go further in terms of how we function as a community to be more, shall we say, uh, familial. So let's, uh, let's just talk about what a family is, what a family is composed of, and then we'll talk about what a family does, and we'll see what we can discover on the way, and that's all we're going to cover today. Um, what is a family composed of? That's right, father, mother, and children. So let's, uh, let's just draw... An Abba and an Ima, which as you probably know is Hebrew for dad and mom. Tirzah calls me Abba, Tirzah calls Genevieve Ima. We'll draw an Abba. We'll draw an Ima. And we'll draw a son and a daughter. How does that sound? Hi, Tirza. She's a she's a Russian Ima. She's a yeah. She likes her sour cream and her pierogies and things for sure. 
There we are. Okay, so let's say that's your typical family unit, eh? That's what a family is composed of. Father, mother, and, um, you know, children. We'll say here a son and a daughter. Now, let me ask you, what are some of the relationships that are in this family? Because you kind of have these two sides. Like, it's interesting. If you have a relationship with someone you're not related to, it's based on something like work, common interest, etc. But when you have a relationship in a family, it's, actually, it's something much deeper, especially with, with your children. I mean, like a, a marriage relationship is covenantal, but between children, they're literally a part of you. You are, you are composed of the same stuff. Uh, and um, so, you know, we have that, like we have that, but we also have the relationships that grow out of our, uh, shall we say, or like our, our organic, um, organic relationships. What would you call that? I don't know, when you're just um, made of the same stuff, as it were. Anyway, just um, show them out to me. What are some of the relationships you see in this family between? Okay. Let's say, um, yeah, teaching is one. Yeah, parent to child. Let's make that more specific. We, we have two here. Okay, there's a father-to-daughter relationship there. What's another one? Hmm? Father-to-son, yeah. What's that? Yeah, okay. Yeah, there's a mother-to-son relationship and a son-to-mother relationship. There's a mother-to-daughter relationship and a daughter-to-mother relationship. There is, here's another one, which one would this be? Yeah, sister to brother and brother to sister. And then what's another one we have here? Yeah, husband and wife. And uh, husband to wife and wife to husband. So can you see all the relationships just in this family unit of four people? If you actually count them, each one of these four people has three other relationships. You count those up and that's actually, that's 12 relationships in just a basic family with four people. 12, you would call them lines of communication, eh? Isn't that amazing? So looking a little farther at that, I come from a family of six people. There's my mom and dad, and there were four brothers, me and my three younger brothers. Do you know how many relationships or lines of communication there were in my family of six growing up? Each of us had five relationships with the other five people. So how many is that? Five times six. Hmm? 30. There were 30 relationships in my family growing up. You know what? That's a lot of relationships to juggle. Hi, baby. <laughs> Are you having fun? Good. Um, my, uh, one of my brothers married a girl from a homeschooling family in Calgary. The parents had 11 children, so there were 13 in total. Guess how many relationships there are in a family of 13? You have, you have um, each, one of those, each one of those 13 people that have 12 relationships or lines of communication. There's a total of 166. In a family of 13, you have 166 relationships or lines of communication. I mean, you just think about it. That, there's, there's a lot of energy in that. There's a lot of talk going on. It's interesting. How many, um, how many were in Yeshua's inner circle? There were 12. So Yeshua plus the 12 is how many? Tears up. Excuse me while we put that back up. Tears up. Yeah, man. It's just Genevieve and tears in me, and now things are already pretty crazy around here, as you can see. Does someone want to come and apprehend her? That might be good. Thanks, guys. Okay, anyway, um, that's the kind of thing that happens in families, by the way. That was a good illustration. 
Anyway, so you know, in, 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 in the circle of Yeshua the Master and his 12 Talmudim, there were 166 relationships going on. There were like, there were 166 lines of communication. Now, how, how is this here a picture of us as God's family? You have, you know, this is a little different actually. Because people can't just say, hey, let's get together and be spiritual family. It doesn't really work that day. Family happens because if, you know, let's say that you're a child because you are born of someone. The fact that you are born of someone or else adopted in makes you a member of that family. So what does that tell us about us as a family? What it tells me is God, as our Abba or Dad, is the one who makes us family. I have, I share a common Abba with you. Therefore, you are my sibling. That's pretty neat, isn't it? And you know what? That was a big theme in the early Yeshua movement, in Yeshua's teaching, and then also in his apostles' teachings. Um, if you could like sum up the two main points of the Master's message, I would probably say they're number one, the kingdom of God, and number two, the fatherhood of God. And in, in the Jewish world of Yeshua's time, there were, some, there were some places where God was addressed as father, often in, in, the, in the phrase, Avinu Malkenu, our father or king. But to call God Abba, to call him dad, that was actually, uh, that was pretty cutting edge in the Jewish world of Yeshua's time. And Yeshua, he, he, he very often would teach on how God is your father and what the practical implications of that are. So he would say, you know what? You look at the nations of the world and they're really stressed out about how they're going to pay the bills, where the next paycheck is going to come from, how they're going to, how they're going to put food on the table. And you don't have to worry about that. Do you know why? Because God's your dad. Matthew chapter 6. And when you pray, he said, you know, you don't have to go on and on and on as if using lots of words, really fancy words, is going to get your prayer answered. Just talk simply. Why? Because God's your dad. And this is the, this is the kind of thing that, uh, that is interwoven throughout Yeshua's teachings. He taught his disciples to call God Father. Um, um, Yeshua even called God Abba. Pretty highly probable he taught his apostles to call God Abba in the language of prayer also. I'll give you um, some evidence of that. There are a couple places in Paul's epistles where he was writing to believers in the diaspora. And these people weren't Hebrew-speaking people. Most of these were primarily Greek-speaking people. And he said, God's Spirit is inside of you. And do you know what God's Spirit in you calls God? Abba. It's, I, I just, I love that. It's like Paul could have used the Greek word for dad. But he didn't. He used the Hebrew word for dad. He, he used the word Abba. I, I, I think the word Abba is kind of like um, one of those Hebrew words that just kind of transcends like cultural lines or linguistic categories. Kind of like there's some Hebrew words that everybody just knows, like Shalom. Um, one of the guys, you know, I, I go and do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu a couple evenings a week. And one of the guys there likes to say Shalom to me when I see him. I never used the word Shalom around those guys, but he just knows. Oh, like that dude's Jewish. He knows the word Shalom, you know. So he's like, hey, Shalom, you know. It's kind of cool. It puts a big smile on my face. But, you know, Shalom would be a word. Uh, hallelujah would be another one of those Hebrew words that everybody just knows. I believe that Abba is a word like that. I mean, you can say Father, you can say Dad, but there's something about the word Abba that came all the way from the Hebrew through the Greek to the English. I don't know. I wonder if that isn't something that God wanted to happen. I wonder if that isn't something that really touches his heart. When you let his spirit inside of you call him Abba in the language of prayer. Even in English, you know. That's a, that's a thought. 
Um, I, I wouldn't take this next idea too far. I wouldn't build like a systematic theology on it, but I do believe that just like God is a father, God also functions as a mother. Um, we know that God created males, masculinity, and fatherhood in his image. It's like a Polaroid of him. It's a snapshot of who he is. We also know that God created females, women, mothers in his image. So just like fatherhood is created in the image of God who is a father, motherhood is also created in the image of God. So, you know, if you have, uh, if you have like a good dad, then that will tell you something about God. If you have a good mom, that will correlatively tell you something about who God is and how you can relate to him. So they're, they're, both, they're both there. Um, you even look at the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has some mothering qualities. Um, the Holy Spirit is the comforter. The Holy Spirit is something of a guide that teaches the children of God. Um, the, the Holy Spirit hovers. If you've ever seen a mom with kids, I'm sure you've seen the mom hover over the kids at times, and maybe the kids don't always like it, right? The kids grew up to be like, 40 and the mom is still hovering over the kid and it's like mom I grew up you know you need to give me a little space maybe sometimes who knows but you totally you totally see that in fact the Hebrew the Hebrew verb that describes the action of God's spirit is sometimes masculine and it's sometimes feminine so it's just it's an interesting thing about the spirit of God there is a, this feminine almost mothering aspect to the Holy Spirit so you can see here in this picture of family there's this fatherhood and motherhood of God and how we can relate to him. We are born of God the Father. We are begotten of him and we are also regenerated by the Holy Spirit as Paul taught. Um, we also have a big brother in this family. Who's our big brother? Yeshua is the big brother. He also happens to be the anointed king. He is your big brother. Um, in Romans chapter 8 verse 29 Paul writes this. He says, Those whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. You can read brothers and sisters there. Did you get that? There was, there was this point. The point was, I want Yeshua, my dear son, to be the firstborn, to be the big brother in a family of brothers and sisters. Um, some of you maybe never grew, out, grew up with an older brother. Maybe some of you wished at times that you had an older brother just to be kind of a source of strength in your life or to uh, be someone that you could look up to, uh, someone that would maybe step in and kick the bully in the teeth when you were being pestered at school. I mean, you name it. You know, I was the older brother, so I didn't have an older brother. There, there have definitely been times when I wished that I hold, had an older brother, eh? Um, I, I think it's good news for a lot of people. If you, if you need an older brother, Yeshua is around. And he wants to have that bond with you. He wants to older brother you, shall we say. That's who he is. That's a relationship that we have with him in the family of God. Um, there's a, here's another passage that describes that. Um, in the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, we read, For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father. Everybody say, from one father. So did you get that? He says, he who sanctifies, that is Yeshua. And you know the word sanctifies, it means to set apart for God. It means to like devote to a cause, um, to make holy in that sense of the word. Did you notice who does that? Yeshua is your sanctifier. Yeshua is the one who sets you apart for God. Yeshua is the one who makes you holy. 
He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, that's you and me, right? As Yeshua is taking us in that process of setting us apart for God, dedicating us to his Father's cause, it says, we're all from the same Father. We have the same Dad. For which reason, he's not ashamed to call them brothers, brothers and sisters. So did you get that? Yeshua is not ashamed to call you his sister, his brother. He looks at you and he says, that's my bro. That's my sis. What would be the, uh, like, not ashamed, that's a double negative, right? What would be the positive flip side of that? He's proud. I think you could say that. So Yeshua is proud to call you his brother. Yeshua looks at you and he was proud to call you his sister. Isn't that awesome? Seriously, like, next time you're commuting to work and next time you're just kicking around your town, just stop and think. Right now Yeshua is looking at you and he is so proud to call you his brother. He is so proud to call you his sister. And you have the same dad. You're, you have a family. You belong to a family. And you know what? To a world that is increasingly losing their families. To a generation that increasingly does not have older brothers they can look up to. To a, like a whole generation of people that will often go to gangs or go to like an MMA academy because they need brothers and stuff. Man, you have something to offer. That's really good news. Don't you love that? That's the gospel. There's a family for you. This verse goes on by saying, he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And that's a quote from the Psalms. So that goes way back. So anyway, that's a, that's a quick look at like the family unit, the relationships that happen in the family, and how that is a picture of what you, the family that you belong to, the spiritual family with, with uh, God as your Father who begat you, with the Holy Spirit that has these mothering qualities who, through whom you have been regenerated, and um, with Yeshua as the older brother in this family, and with each other as uh, bros and sisters. I just want to look here at a couple practical outcomes of this. We're going to talk practically for a couple minutes, and then we're going to talk practically next week about a couple more of these uh, ramifications of like, okay, what does it mean that we're a family? What's that look like? How does that affect stuff like um, next week? We're going to talk about how does that affect stuff like the venues where we gather, the size of our groups, how we resolve conflict or confront sin, uh, what we value in leaders, um, our understanding of mission, and uh, what, what do we do with the kids. We're going to talk about those themes next week. Uh, this week, we're just going to look at one thing. What do families do together? And uh, here, are a couple, here are a couple of things that I came up with. I'll, I'll just share them with you, and then you can give me your ideas, and then we'll break a couple of them down. Um, families, here are six things that I, I thought of when I, as I was brainstorming about this. Families eat together. Uh, families spend time together. Families show each other affection. Uh, families share work. Families share resources. And families take care of each other. So let's look at each one of those for a couple minutes here and start to like kind of break down this concept of the, us being a family to some practical stuff. Um, first thing is families eat together. Uh, generally, a uh, house has one table, the family gathers around the table, and they share meals. You know, we live in a culture that is increasingly busy. Sometimes both of the parents work, and they have conflictatory schedules. Uh, kids are at school. But you know what? Even in the midst of that busyness, the, the table is still an icon of family life. Families still gather around the table. I, I think for a lot of Americans especially, if you were to say, what, what event or what time of the year most represents family to you? What, what, what's the event 
or a place in your home that um, really gives you the warm fuzzies, that you think about being together with family. I think a lot of Americans would say it's Thanksgiving, where we gather around the table. So you can totally, you can totally hear that eating together part of family life. I'm going to read to you a page from a book. It's a book that I, uh, I sent an email a couple weeks ago re- uh, recommending it. It's called The House Church Book by Wolfgang Simpson. And I'm just going to read to you a page about families eating together, page 34. So if you want to turn to page 34 in your house church book, we'll, uh, we'll read something here. So Wolfgang Simpson, in talking about what we do as communities, he, um, he says, under the heading, meeting, and he spells that M-E-A-T-I-N-G, meeting, Christians meet to eat. When Jesus taught people, it usually involved meeting them in their homes, eating and drinking whatever they offered, Typically, the teaching occurred right at the table, surrounded by children and visitors, not just after a meal or in an artificial setup. Did you notice that? There are actually quite a few stories that, um, from the Gospels that took place around a table. Yeshua was just eating with people who had him over. Similarly, the house church is a table community, sharing real food. The Lord's Supper was a substantial supper with a symbolic meaning, not a symbolic supper with a st- substantial meaning. I thought that was good. Did you catch that? The Lord's Supper was a substantial supper with a symbolic meaning, not a symbolic supper with a substantial meaning. And for us, of course, we, uh, we, would eat, we eat the Lord's Supper together around the Lord's table at the Passover for the Passover meal. And that is indeed a very substantial meal. As the believers were eating a meal of lamb, it probably dawned on them what this was all about. Humans having dinner with God. The Hebrew tradition was to start the meal by breaking the bread then to eat the main course, and then to end the meal with a toast of wine. The New Testament says this of the early Christians. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Acts 2.46. Um, just as a little side note, you can tell that that was more than just a little wafer or cracker or whatever, because if it's meal time and people bring out and you each get a little teeny tiny like mini Ritz cracker or whatever, I would not be eating with a glad heart. I would be like, I'm hungry. I need something real here. Especially because I'm kind of hypoglycemic. So I'd, be, I'd be especially be the not glad-hearted person in that context. Anyway, um, that's what it says, Acts 2.46. Sharing meals was quite possibly a daily experience. Eating was the main purpose of their meetings. When you come together to eat, wait for each other, wrote Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.33. Did you get that? Paul writing to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11.33 says, when you come together to eat. I like that. We get together to eat. Like that is a very spiritual activity. That was a ma- this is the main objective um, for which we gather. Eating was and is central to the extension of the kingdom. When Jesus sent his disciples two by two in Luke 10, one to eight, he advised them to find a man of peace and to eat and drink what was given to them. As the disciples admitted their own basic needs and accepted food from their hosts, they shared life at a very intimate and basic level prophetically admitting that we are all dependent on God for our daily bread, whether we know it or not. That, in turn, opened their hosts to the bread of life that the disciples had to offer. The question of who we eat with is central to our social identity. In most cultures, we typically eat with our immediate family members. In God's household, God is the Father. Jesus is the master of the house. And the disciples are the children. We are made one family by the blood of Jesus. So we are spiritual blood relatives. I like that. I like that phrase. Spiritual blood relatives. You know how sometimes people will say, like, um, how thick blood is. A family relationships are thick because blood is thick. 
I like to say spirit is thicker than blood. Maybe some of you have heard me say that. When we're spiritually related, that's even a stronger bond. People who previously would have had nothing to do with one another are now close family members and therefore even eat together. Sharing one of the most basic of human needs, ordinary food, was and still is a sign of deep and revolutionary fellowship, cutting through all previous nationality, caste, clan, and tribal affiliations. In some nations, eating together is one form of sealing a legal contract or making peace with each other. When people of the most diverse backgrounds eat together, it delivers a strong and powerful message to the world. We are now one family. See, we even eat together. So that's a thought from uh, Simpson on eating together. Let's look at these other five things that, fa that I can identify that families do. A family spend time together. Like that's the, I think that's one of the most basic meanings of love. When you love someone, you really like being around that person. You like spending quality time with that person. That's why I married Genevieve. I really liked her. Like I really wanted to spend a lot of time around her, right? And uh, I guess the way you do that is by getting married to the person, and then you get to do that. So, you know, when you, when you love somebody, and that's not just marital love, of course. When you love a person, you just want to hang out with them. You want to do stuff together. I wonder if that doesn't apply when Yeshua said, hey guys, you know the way I loved you? Like, I loved you so much, I just wanted you to leave everything and just, like, live with me for several years. I want you to love each other like that. Love each other like I've loved you. Wow, that's huge, eh? So if you need a definition of love, use that definition. You spend time together. Um, quite frankly, that's something that sometimes makes me really sad about stuff that happens in Messianic communities. You can tell when people don't really like each other, when they don't like spending time with each other. Communities disintegrate. Groups crumble. Everybody just stays home on Shabbat. And I, I think that's really sad, quite frankly, because what it says is, our love has grown cold. We don't really want to make the time to spend time with each other. We'd just as rather be home by ourselves or with our immediate families than get together with our faith family. And, and that's sad. So I would say, like, use this as a litmus test of your love. Use this as, like, to check. Do I really love the people around me? Say, do I, do I want to spend time with them? Have I made time to spend time with them? Have I been intentional about getting together? It's a really good way of telling whether you really love your fellowship or not. So, anyway, that's something that families do. They, uh, they, they spend a lot of time together. And uh, maybe at the end of this, I'll, we can discuss a question here. What are some of the things that families like to do when they spend time together? Because maybe that will even look like us uh, as a faith family. Actually, why don't we just showed a couple things out to me. We don't have to keep it for the end. Yeah, what are some things that families like to do when they spend time together? Play games. Play games? Like spoons? We played spoons together. Oh, I love playing spoons. Or, tell stories. Tell stories? Make memories. Pray and sing, yeah. Work on projects. Do chores, for sure. Share their knowledge, like teaching each other. You know, like one family member whether So true, yeah. Sharing knowledge and teaching each other. For example, when I spend time with my mom, I often help her navigate the internet or teach her how to use her computer. That's family time. Yeah. Oh, good. You taught her how to scan documents while I was gone. Good job, John. Okay. Um, that's excellent. Anything, any, anything else that families like to do together? Discussions. Discussions. How to cure the world. How to, how to cure the world? Okay. Oh, yeah, your dad. That was a favorite topic of his. 
That's great. Okay. Praying for each other. Yeah, hopefully families pray for each other. That's good. Okay, so that's, that's number two, just spending time together. Uh, number three, showing each other affection. Now, if you come from like, uh, I don't know, maybe like a really classy British family, you might not be so hot at this one. You might not be so great at showing affection. Your idea of affection might be like a handshake that's an extended by an extra second. Like um, my, my dad's family comes from like an English-Scottish background. Most English or Scots aren't really famous for being like overly affectionate or emotionally um, expressive, eh? Like my mom's side of the family is from Russia and the Ukraine. So like the guys on my mom's side of the family, like we cry, uh, we kiss each other on the cheek sometimes. Not all the time, but just like, you know, if you're, gonna say, if you're saying goodbye to your bro and he's going to go to Israel for half a year, you might even kiss him on the cheek. Um, you know, like, I don't know. So I, I kind of have both sides in my family. And um, my dad's side of the family come a long way, actually. So I've heard. I mean, I wasn't around a couple decades ago, but my dad's side of the family's come a long way. They actually hug each other and uh, they, they say, I love you. And that's awesome. That's awesome to see when families show each other affection. When, a fam- when families say, I love you. And not just like once a year, but regularly. You know, I, I remember when I was growing up, every night before, you know, we, we had this ritual before going to bed. I wouldn't call it a ritual, but, you know, we, we, we'd, um, we'd, um, we'd pray together and we'd hug each other. And, you know, in a family of six, that's quite a bit of hugging. That's like, um, that's 30 hugs going around right there. And, and we'd say, I love you. That was the last thing we'd say before going to bed. And, you know, I, I took that for granted. It was just our family culture. But when I look back on that, I'm so thankful for that, that I grew up in a family that had a lot of warmth, a family where where parents and children and brothers, because I didn't have any sisters, just brothers, um, weren't afraid to show affection and to, and to show it warmly. I mean, you can, totally see, you can totally see that in me, right? Like, I'm a hugger. I hug everybody. I, I, I like, hug the, like, the, I don't know, I'd, I'd hug my waiter at the restaurant almost. I've never done that, but I should sometime. But anyway, like, that's, that's kind of the family that I'm, I, I, my family background. And you can totally see that in the life of Yeshua's early communities. What did, um, what did it a couple times the apostles conclude their letters with? They said, greet each other with something. With a holy kiss. I mean, yes, that's definitely a Middle Eastern cultural thing, but, but what's, what's the underlying idea behind a holy kiss? It's not just saying hi, or even just verbally saying, yeah, I love you. It's like it's showing some physical token of your affection for your brother or sister in the faith. So, you know, I, I think a Western equivalent of a holy kiss is probably a holy hug. And um, I, I commend you, Crown of Messiah, because I think you, you've done a very good job um, greeting each other with holy hugs. And uh, you know what? I think that's biblical culture, from what I can see here. And, you know, I, there's a definitely a time for shake, handshaking also in the, in, um, in, in the Messianic community or whatever. I'm fine with handshaking. Or sometimes, you know, if there's a little hesitancy between a male and a female and hugging, that's fine too. You know, something, something to master is the, the sideways hug. You know, Genevieve, where are you? Genevieve, could you come running for just a sec? I'll just, I'll demonstrate the halfway hug, right? Because it's a good thing sometimes in, in communities too. Because like, okay, let's say that you have like, if you're a brother or whatever, if you have a sister in the faith, you know, you don't, if you're a brother, you don't want to necessarily kind of be the one to hug a person, a, a woman for the first time, because you don't know what her boundaries are, right? So if, if she hugs you, that's great. But, um, you know, a handshake is cool. Or, you know, you can do like, you can do a handshake like this. It's just kind of like, it's just, it's an affectionate handshake, you know? Um, or you can give a half hug like this. That's really good, too. You know, if you're really, really squeamish, you can be like, <laughs> hi. 
or you know, but you don't, but like, you know, a holy hug doesn't mean that you have to necessarily, necessarily be like draped over the person like that, you know what I'm saying? Heavy. Or like a holy hug doesn't mean you have to like pick the person up and twirl them around. Genevieve's my wife, so I can do that. But you know, that's, that's, that's maybe wouldn't qualify as a holy hug. So anyway, thanks baby. But So yeah, so anyway, you know, just having, having a community culture where we love each other and we show it in, in physical ways, where we express that, that's a good thing. That's actually something the apostles said to do. They said greet each other with, uh, with physical tokens of, of affection. Um, okay, uh, last three things. Number, oh yeah, okay, here's one more passage, sorry, about just loving each other like that. Um, Simon Peter, in his first epistle, chapter 1, verse 22, said, Since you have an obedience to the truth purified your souls for sincere love of the brothers, fervently love one another from the heart. It's like, like, let's just break that down for a second. So the first thing, you're obeying the truth. You're purifying your soul. That's like having a pure soul. When you look at someone in a pure way, with the pure love of God, for sincere love of the brothers. So it's not like you're faking it. It's not like you're just going through motions. You actually really like that person. You love that person. And sincere love of the brothers and sisters fervently love one another. Isn't that cool? He didn't say just love each other. It's like have a really fervent love from the heart. Wow. I just, that's a packed expression right there, hey? I think I'm going to spend my whole life growing in that and learning how to do that. And uh, maybe we as a community can spend our whole life growing in that also and creating a culture where we have baby believers, new disciples coming in, and that's so contagious and they pick that up. Because you know what? That's a powerful picture of the love of God in action. And I think we live in a world that really needs that kind of love. You know, an unselfish love, a sincere love, a love from the heart, a pure love. Um, number four, uh, families share work. Everybody helps out. Um, how many of you had chores when you were growing up? Especially if you, live, you grew up on the farm, you just had certain things that you did to help out in the family because you were, you were part of the family. Um, what, what, are some, what are some ways that families work together? Some, what are some of the things that families do? That was your grandpa, you said? So your grandpa taught your family to work together and play together. And if you're done your responsibilities, go help another family with theirs, hey? I love that. I love that. That's an excellent application. Yep. Um, what are some other ways that families work together? You just share chores, eh? Help out, that kind of thing, sure. Um, Sometimes you even have chores listed. Some people have like a calendar where they have the chores listed and they check them off. Okay, you do this this week, you do that. This guy does the dishes today. This, guy, this girl gets supper ready that evening, that kind of thing. You know, there's a place for organization in, um, in um, distributing work and sharing that together. And that definitely applies in community also. Um, fifthly, families share resources. You live in the same house. Uh, husbands and wives generally share a bank account. Um, the kids will often get to take the keys and take the vehicle out if they need to. Um, there are lots of examples like that. If you have older brothers and sisters, then you probably get hand-me-downs. These are, is that how you say that? Hands-me-down or hand-me-downs? Yeah, hand-me-downs, right. But all of those are examples of, um, of families sharing resources. I wonder what that looks like in Yeshua's family, communities of disciples. Uh, here's, here's a passage along those lines. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul says, So then, while we have the opportunity, let's do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the family of the faith. So he said, you know, every opportunity you have, help people, do good for them, and especially for those in your faith family. And then um, sixthly, 
Families take care of each other. What are some ways that families take care of each other, help each other out? Old age. Old age? Mm-hmm. Well, what would that look like? Let's say you have a family member who's getting old. What kind of things do you do for that family member? Right, help your mom with her medication, take her to the bath, yeah. Just babysitting. Thank God for that. Yes, uh, the flip side of that is, I'm repeating this for our live streaming friends, just so you guys know. The flip side of that is um, the older people babysit for the younger people, yeah. Oh, thank God. Yeah, so in, in, in the church that you were growing up and you said people would just pass around maternity bags of clothes because there were always babies being born, hey? Actually, like when we had Tirza, oh, like the Messianic community in our province blessed us so much. So many people were like, you know, I have a crib, I have a stroller, I have this set of girls' clothes, you can have them. And like, I, we had to buy almost nothing. And I'm thankful because we were pretty low income too, you know. We had to buy so little for a little girl. And I was so thankful for that. So isn't it cool how it's not like these are things that we're not doing. These are things that naturally happen in the community of faith. Because the love of God is in us and because it feels good to help each other too. Yeah, some other things I thought of were like helping each other when sick. You know, um, making meals for each other. Nursing each other back to health at times. Um, helping out with uh, moving. There's one pastor that I've listened to who said, you know your real friends by who shows up on moving day. He calls them moving day friends. Those are your most committed friends. So, you know, helping each other move. Uh, my, my brother Colin came out to help us move from the farm. And then quite a few of you guys came out to help us um, when we got to Prince Albert here. And that was invaluable. I think I would have died trying to move everything without you. Um, some other things would be yard work, doing yard work together, raking leaves, cleaning up, working in the garden. Um, another big area is fixing stuff. You might be appliances, vehicles, things around the house, but things break down. And quite often it's a family member that fixes it for you. Um, and then I also had babysitting here mentioned, and you already got that one. So anyway, th these are some things that I came up with that you know, families do to, uh, to take care of each other, to help each other out. And isn't it neat that for many people, they don't have parents or siblings or children in their city. But if they're part of a community of Yeshua's disciples, they do have so many parents. They have so many siblings. They have so many, shall we say, spiritual children. And uh, the role that a family relationships would play in the world is often the role that our relationships with each other get to play in, uh, in our community. I, I thank God for that. I, I thank God that his spirit is moving in us and that his love is active in us and that this is built into our DNA. Like, this is just what we do. And that's what we're going to keep on doing and, and growing in. And we're going to have a lot of fun with it. So I will... Um, I'll leave this talk at there, and uh, next Shabbat we'll, we'll talk about some of those other issues that I said we would talk about. How does that actually work out in questions like venue, where do we meet, group size, how many people do you have in a group, how do we resolve conflict and arguments, uh, what do we value in leaders, how do we view mission, and um, what do we do with the kids. These are some questions we're going to look at next Shabbat, kind of building on the concept of us as a family. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.